Great to see you all as we uh, will continue to study um, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we find our place in chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that they call, that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We'll stop there. Um, We enter a section of scripture here um, that even the most biblically illiterate um, are somewhat familiar with, um, not with regard to the passage or the scripture address per se, uh, but the concept here, and, and that is the end of the world, doomsday, Armageddon. And of course, with books and movies and charts and prophecy updates, um, those things frame um, their eschatology. Uh, many believers frame their eschatology by such books and movies and charts and all this type of thing. And there are, of course, those interpreters of Revelation who see it as one gigantic, cryptic puzzle um, to be solved. Uh, The mark of the beast, um, 666, for instance, has been figured out to be anything from computer chips to credit cards and the internet and uh, just just crazy nonsense. The figure of chapter 6, verse 2, the uh, first horseman, we're going to talk about that. We're going to go back to that this morning. Um, The one riding on the white horse has been identified as a number of candidates from Adolf Hitler to Mussolini and a host of others along the way. But, you know, this this kind of crystal ball view of Revelation also interprets here this gathering of the kings of the east at a place called Armageddon. Um, it's been referenced as uh, China coming against Israel. At one time, it was Russia. And whoever seems to be, you know, uh, rattling their sabers the loudest at the moment happens to be the ones that you interpret this text by. Uh, but with that approach, of course, there's no end um, to the possibilities that, that can be applied to this. Um, there are a number of uh, dispensational premillennial Zionists who, who make these kind of predictions, and they're proven wrong time and time again, and they still come out swinging boldly, and they maintain a large audience. There was a certain dispensational premillennial Zionist um, who was known as the, and still is, as the prophecy expert who was all the rave in the late 90s. And he came out predicting all kinds of cataclysmic events with regard to Y2K. You remember the hysteria of Y2K? And none of those things came to pass. But he sold numerous books and is still one of the most popular, quote-unquote, 
puzzle solvers within dispensational circles. And as many a times as they fail in their predictions, you know, centering all their ideals uh, on Israel having come into possession of the land in 1948, you can be wrong a hundred times over. But as long as you're a premillennial, dispensational Zionist, that's okay, it seems. It's okay. But if you teach that the New Testament portrays the church as God's true Israel, which it does, symbolically describing the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel as those who truly belong to the 12 tribes, as those who confess the message of the apostles of the Lamb, and that it has nothing to do with ethnicity, you know, you're, you're ostracized. You're looked at as an anti-Semite, unfortunately. Because that's not the dispensational Zionist view, which is the most popular view of our day, most specifically um, in America. And to not be a dispensational Zionist is unthinkable to many. It's heretical to many. And as I said, it's uh, anti-Semitic to most. But that's how foolish and divisive um, the argument is. So again, as we get back into this, our interpretive key Um, remains the same to the book of Revelation. It doesn't change when we get to chapter 16 and in and through chapter 22. We interpret this as we have the entire letter, and we see the imagery described here as symbolic. Symbolic imagery. And it's imagery borrowed from Old Testament prophecy, originally given to the first century church in Asia Minor. And this is imagery that cannot mean something for us that it was never that was never intended for them. Key principle. It cannot mean something for us. It never was intended for them to mean. And if that were the case, only the first, first five chapters of the Revelation um, could it have served as encouragement to them or for anyone, for that matter, from the first century until today, unless you're living in the very last moments of the very last day. Or the very last moments of the very last days. But the Revelation is written to encourage believers throughout all generations until the end of the age. Amen? So throughout the book, we've seen um, progressive parallelism, recapitulation with growing intensity. The cycles of judgment grow with intensity. Imagery or pictures increasing Intensity with regard to um, the judgment of Almighty God. And judgment that the world is even under at this very moment as we sit here this morning leading to this awful depiction of that which is yet to come, and that is finality um, of all things. Now, back in chapter 6, if you want to go back to chapter 6, we, you recall the release of the four horsemen. And the four horsemen uh, serve as precursors to God's final judgment. The lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, right? And that was followed by a, red, a bright red horse. One was to conquer, and he came conquering. And given him was, was a bow and, and a crown. And then a bright red. Uh, the rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. 
black horse, a pair of scales, and then a pale horse um, to follow. So they're released as Jesus, the only one found worthy to open the scrolls, not only to open the scrolls, but to implement the content therein. And we see represented in the four horsemen, war, death, famine, and disease. Events of partial judgment that occur when? It's not some brief moment at the seven year, this last seven years of human history, but partial judgment that began at his ascension and are carried out and will be finalized at his consummation. So we have to understand the four horsemen as, as precursors to his final judgment. And these, these horsemen were released 2,000 years ago describing God's providential judgments upon a Christ-rejecting world. And these are calamities that characterize and identify the period of time between the two advents, once again, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very important. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said what? All authority, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven above and earth below. And that informs us that Jesus, that is God incarnate, rules everything from monarchs to microorganisms. But hasn't God always? Of course he has. But Jesus, God incarnate, it was delegated by the Father to him as God incarnate. He had to come down to become man, and then ascend as God incarnate, who rules and reigns forevermore. From monarchs to microorganisms, he rules it all. He released, he ordered the release of these four horsemen. So these persecuted Christians who received this letter were written, this letter, to be encouraged that in the midst of their weakness, they are shown who it is that is in control. As they suffer, who it is that's in control between the two great events of redemptive history, the first and the second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a period of delay, and what's referred to as the already but not yet. The already inaugurated but not yet fully consummated kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, while at the same time, we live in a time of tribulation. Revelation 1.9, I am John, your partner in the kingdom and the tribulation. That's the tension of the already and the not yet. See, we live in America. Cush, cush, America. Friends, our brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted by the sword. Burned, alive, beheaded, shot dead now and you tell them they're not in the tribulation see what they say so these temporal judgments while fulfilled in the lifetime of these Asia minor churches have also found their fulfillment over the last 2,000 years and will continue to be fulfilled until this final truly cataclysmic judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ At this very moment, nations long for military conquest. It is inevitable. That's the white horse. At this very moment, blood is shed from man by man. 
It's inevitable. That's the red horse. At this very moment, there's famine around the world. It's inescapable. That's the black horse. And at this very moment, there's pestilence. It's unstoppable. That's the pale horse. But by the mercy of God. So we mustn't mistake, that is to say, we mustn't mistake natural disasters, wars and famine as, as mere happenstance, as things that you know, occur randomly. We must see these things as God's providential judgments in part to awaken a sleeping people. To acknowledge their creator. And when rightly acknowledged, will lead to their redeemer, if he's their redeemer. So this is written to encourage a persecuted church who suffers. So then the series of uh, visions here in Revelation have grown with intensity from chapter 6. We'd all agree with that, amen? Now it's been a number of years. If you're confused, you need to go back and listen to all the messages. Because breaking from a book like the book of Revelation is problematic because everything's so tightly wound together with visions and images and such. So, Now, the bold judgments here, chapter 16, are, are by far the most severe, um, far-reaching of all the cycle judgments that we've seen thus far, um, bringing destruction upon the whole earth. Now, we've seen visions of destruction on the whole earth, but as I said, this is more intense. And, and remember, remember last time we were together, verse 10, yeah, chapter 16. In, ch- in verse 10, it says that uh, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent. The judgment of God does not soften them unto repentance. Praise God you're saved, right? Sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the only reason you repented is because God graced you to do so. You're not brilliant enough to do that on your own. Because we're rebels. These people are hardened. And they have greater antagonism towards the God under whose judgment they suffer. Such is, the case with, such is the case with Pharaoh, which we will see. The judgments of God only hardened him as God released these signs of judgment upon him. Harden. This is another reminder, beloved, that divine judgment and even hell itself has no remedial effect. There aren't people crying in hell, I wish, I wish, I wish. They're gnashing their teeth at the God under whose wrath they suffer. No remedial effect. Sinners will sin for eternity in hell. And those who repent, once again, do so only because they've been graciously sealed by God. If you need a reminder of that, just go back and read Ephesians 1. Sovereign grace, sovereign grace, sovereign grace, sovereign grace. And because of sovereign grace, you've been sealed with the Holy Ghost. Grace. Or you would be gnashing your teeth at him as well. 
So here, we, we move forward to this, this vision of final, fierce judgment. So the picture, okay, here it is, the picture of a dried-up Euphrates for armies to march in is symbolic. The armies are symbolic. The river's symbolic. Amen? Okay, we're going to look at this. Okay, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they're demonic spirits. That tells you enough right there. Performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. This, friends, is not a literal war that takes place in the Valley of Megiddo. And I say that because many claim that Armageddon is a reference to the plains of Megiddo. Northeast of Jerusalem, the site of several battles um, in, in Israel's history. If you take a tour there with a dispensational premillennial brother like I did, he will point to that valley and say, this is where it's all going to go down. The most popular interpretive view of this verse, specifically in American evangelicalism, is that at the end of the age, the armies of the world will assemble on the plains of Megiddo to wipe out the nation of Israel and then attempt to fight against the armies of heaven. Friends, there's not even a literal place called Armageddon. Which provides the literalist with just another problem. So they assume it's the Valley of Megiddo. But this reference to Armageddon has nothing to do with the plain of Megiddo or to the war supposedly waged against the nation of Israel um, at the end of a seven-year tribulation, as dispensationalism teaches. Instead, it's more accurately argued that Armageddon is to be understood as Armageddon. Armageddon, the mount of gathering. And here's the key. The mount of assembly. The mount of gathering. Dennis Johnson writes, building upon the work of Meredith Klein and C.C. Torrey, he argues, and I quote, that Armageddon represents an alternative Greek transliteration of the Hebrew expression mount of assembly or the place of gathering. In the Old Testament, the mount of assembly is heaven, Isaiah 14, but is also Mount Zion, heaven's earthly reflection, Psalm 48. Thus, the deceivers are gathering the world's rebel forces to lay siege to the church as the earthly expression of heavenly Mount Zion, period, end quote. Quite frankly, there's not a literal place on earth big enough for this let alone the plains of Megiddo. This is the final, ultimate judgment of the enemies of God. All the enemies of God. So what we have before us in chapter 16 is yet another picture, another angle, another 
vision of the same vision, and that is of God's final harvest of the earth. Back in chapter 14, verse 19, the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay, this bloody imagery is borrowed from the flow of juice that comes out of the bottom level of a stone wine press. In chapter 19, verse 15, we're told that Jesus is the one treading the wine press. This is his wrath. 1,600 stadia is 184 miles. But 16... And remember, numbers are symbolic in Revelation. 16, as it's been said, is a multiple of four. Four, in the book of Revelation, is used to stress the idea of the whole earth. Remember? The four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth. That represents the whole earth. This represents the judgment of God upon the whole earth. God's destruction of all his enemies. So it's just another depiction of God's final and ultimate judgment. I was studying this all day on Tuesday, and I was thinking about this, these verses, blood as high as a horse's bridle, um, 1,600 stadia, and all this. And I was thinking how many dispensational guys I've heard say that it's literal blood throwing, flowing down that valley five feet deep. I get into my truck... Turn on the engine. <laughs> In the station I have it on, there's a guy teaching this. That's exactly what he sl- said. He said, this is blood that will be flowing for 200 miles, five feet deep. Literally. I don't even think that's possible. 200 miles, five feet deep. How wide? This, friends, is an apocalyptic vision of Satan's final assault upon Christ's church, the Mount of Assembly, Harmageddon, an assault that is finally and ultimately crushed by Christ upon his return. That's the vision. That's the imagery. It has nothing to do with the nation of Israel. Nothing to do with Megiddo. Nothing to do with the literal Euphrates River drying up. It's all symbolic. So let's look at the symbolism. Drying up of water. The Old Testament prophets spoke of the drying up of rivers, right? Isaiah eleven fifteen, Isaiah 44, 27. Jeremiah 50, verse 38. Jeremiah 51, verse 36. We read of King Cyrus... In Isaiah chapters 41 to 46, who led his army to divert the river and eventually defeat Babylon. And the fact that Isaiah refers to Cyrus as coming from the east in Isaiah 42, verse 2, 41, verse 2, that provides the way. For Revelation 16 with a very similar picture that comes from the Bible. And this time it's kings from the east. Who crossed the dry bed of the river 
Euphrates. To which Kim Riddlebarger comments, therefore, and I quote, the removal of the barrier allows the agents of judgment to enter. End quote. Who's the agents of judgment? The enemies of God. Who are the enemies of God? The enemies of his church. The people of God. So the imagery is introduced using language that that reminds us of the drying up of the Red Sea. Amen? Drying up of the Red Sea at the time of the Exodus. The barrier was lifted. Bringing forth God's enemies. Pharaoh and his armies. The barrier is lifted, they enter in, and they're swallowed up by judgment. God's judgment. He closes the waters in on them. But only this time, it's the river Euphrates symbolically used as the barrier to be lifted. Now, it's also important to remember that after the uh, wilderness wandering of the children of Israel... God dries up the Jordan so that God's people can enter in to possess the land of promise. So we see here judgment and deliverance portrayed. Now, the vision of the sixth bull takes place against the backdrop of the sixth trumpet with the same symbolic barrier being used, and that is the Euphrates River, that prevented an army of 200 million soldiers described in Revelation 9. You can look at that if you like. Verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet, released the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, 200 million. Now, historically, the great river Euphrates was the eastern border of the kingdom of Israel. And as you pass over the boundary of the kingdom, what do you find? Enemies. Over the border? Enemies. So the fear of the Jews back in those days was a Parthian invasion from the east. That was the fear. Proceeding from across that river. That's the, that's the imagery here that's being conveyed. Enemies of the kingdom who enter in when the barrier is lifted. Now, think about the first century reader. The first century reader would have readily identified in the Roman Empire with the imagery that's being used here in the Revelation. Because during the time of the Roman Empire, when Revelation was written, although Rome claimed to rule the north, the south, and the west, they feared an invasion, a Parthian invasion from the east. This is what they feared. Parthians were known for their boldness in battle, history tells us. Their archers had perfected the art of riding forward while shooting their arrows backward, known as the Parthian shot. 
from where we get the phrase, a parting shot, is you leave a room and leave everyone with a derogatory comment or whatever. (laughs) Parting shot, the Parthian shot. And at one time it said that Parthians killed two legions of Roman soldiers, 12,000 with a shower of arrows. So the first century reader could have understood something of the imagery here. Now, in Revelation 9, these mounted troops, 200 million, again, is not a literal picture of 200 million horses and their riders, as as some will interpret this. Again, this is a picture with great meaning behind the picture. I mean, raising an army of this size, this transcends human capability. This, friends, is a demonic cavalry. All we have to do is continue to read the text. It's a demonic cavalry. Remember when John heard the number 144,000 from 12 tribes? Okay, when he looked, he saw something completely different. He heard 144,000 from the 12 tribes. When he looked, he saw a number that no one could number from every tribe, tongue, and nation. After hearing a number of 200 million riders on 200 million horses, what he sees is something much more than mere Parthian soldiers. Back in Revelation 9, verse 17. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. So here again, imagery, fire, smoke, belching creatures. The focus is on the horse. So the point and purpose of the riders and their horses is not 200 million horses, let alone 200 million tanks and aircraft and gunships and all this type of thing. This is indicating for us demonic hordes of attack upon unbelievers in Revelation 9 that do God's bidding, that do God's bidding. So the emphasis here in Revelation 9, 16 to 19, is on the demonic character of the cavalry, which shows no mercy to man, woman, or child. The colors correspond to hell itself, fiery red and yellow. And when you burn sulfur, it produces a blue flame. Fire and sulfur reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah, amen? And God's judgment on wickedness and a foretaste of hell. Imagery. So the fierceness of this cavalry is not its riders, but the attention, once again, is given to the horses. Heads like lions, strong, they devour their prey with fire pouring forth from its what? Mouth like that of an ancient dragon. The number, it's, it's just an incalculable number. So John makes use of ancient geographical terminology here to portray the character of God's fearful, fearful judgment that's consuming a rebellious people, limited in scope back in chapter 9. And here we see that, yes, demons do the bidding of God upon unbelievers. And we talked about some of that torment last time. But here in chapter 16, moving forward, 
This illustration far transcends any local or geographical event. The sixth bowl judgment depicts a massive, a massive escalation um, of this particular conflict. So, John says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, the fact that a figurative interpretation is in order here can be seen from glancing forward, chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many what? Waters. Where the Babylonian prostitute sits, which we'll look at next week, which is another way of describing the great river Euphrates and its waters of chapter 16, verse 12. So the many waters of 17, verse 1, further explained as peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages in verse 15. Notice, the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. That's an expansion of chapter 16, verse 12. Okay, now, the rallying troops. We see the river, symbolic. The rallying troops, it's a dragon-led assault. The same assault we've seen waged since Genesis 3 between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent or the dragon. That's the conflict. And that, of course, was clearly depicted back in chapter 12 where Jesus Christ pulls back the veil and allows John to see the heavenly conflict of that battle between the seed of the woman and the dragon who who just waited to devour the child, remember? So the adversary here of the people of God and his desire to destroy God's people produces a result, and that is the pouring out of the sixth bowl. And here, these three opponents of the saints rise in hostility, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. That is Satan, satanic politics, and satanic religion. Underway as we speak. It's going on right now. Satan, satanic politics, and satanic religion. So, this is depicting for us a a trinity of evil right here that vomits out three frog-like spirits who deceive unbelieving people into what? We'll read it all throughout 17. Idolatry. Idolatry. They're able to perform deceptive signs just like uh, is the second beast or false prophet, chapter 13, verse 13, is said to perform. So the fact that these frogs, notice, only affect uh, the kings of the earth is a reminder, again, back to Exodus and the sign judgment upon Pharaoh in Exodus 8. He was the first one affected by the frogs. He was the first one affected. And then all of Egypt. His palace, his bed. And then all the land. 
So if dispensationalists are going to spend time and energy attempting to pinpoint what's happening in the Middle East with Putin or whatever in Russia, or with ISIS terrorists, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, you miss the reality of this battle, which is depicted for us in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Beloved, all worship and belief outside of the one true God and His only Son, Jesus Christ, is idolatrous and dynamic dynamic in nature. That's the picture. They're deceived. You're not deceived. You're sealed. That's the plague that destroys people in their souls. All of which, notice, is communicated with what? Words. That which comes out of the mouths of these creatures. The battle's what comes out of the mouth of this evil trinity. Words convey a message. Why do we call Jesus Christ the Word became flesh? Logos, right? The Word became flesh because He's the very expression of God. So we must allow the words that come from on high, the Holy Scriptures, to explain Him, explain His grace, and explain His judgment, and explain the fact that we only have six minutes left. This evil trinity belches out words, and people are deceived. So, friends, this battle has nothing to do with the plains of Megiddo, the nation of Israel, or the literal physical armies of the world fighting against Christ. That's a ridiculous thought. John is providing for us an apocalyptic vision of Satan's final assault upon the church. Mount Zion, Harmageddon, the Mount of Assembly. That's the picture. A period of unparalleled intense persecution when evil forces, now restrained, will be released to work against his church. Perhaps it's going on right now. An assault ultimately and grossly crushed by Christ. That's the picture. That's the warning. You know, some believers, people I know personally, actually dispute talking about Christ's judgment. Can you believe it? They do. One writer says this. This is for anyone who thinks like that. If anyone disputes talking about the reality of eternal judgment, then begin by addressing your criticisms to Jesus Christ or else hold your tongue. End quote. In other words, keep your mouth shut. It's a polite way of saying keep your mouth shut. On that day, says John, Satan and all his minions, the beast the false prophet, along with all kings and nations who serve them, are taken up by his sickle, thrown and crushed in the winepress of his wrath. And will will the church be persecuted until then? Yes. Are they being persecuted? Yes. 
at the time between the already and not yet is also the tension of tribulation. And this here is the judgment day when God's wrath will be completed. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is what? Done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So here Babylon is is given a cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Verse 19. All that now awaits her, this prostitute, is the shout, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which we'll see in chapter 18. Again, it's all imagery. It's not a real woman. It's not a literal woman. Now, I want to go back to this parenthetical statement back in verse 15. that comes with the beatitude. comes with the blessing. Notice in the middle of all this is a message for the people that were being addressed with this literal letter, the seven churches. Behold, I'm coming like a thief, blessed, is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Notice this is not a geopolitical warning with a blessing that says, if you want to be blessed, stand with Israel. I'm not begging on Israel. That's not the point at all. I'm not anti-Semitic. That's not the point at all. This is not a summons to vote or buy a T-shirt that says, Unite America with Israel. That's not the point. This is not blessed as the one who remains an ally of Israel. Friends, this is about worldview stuff. That's what this is about. Garments have nothing to do with geopolitical alliances. It's all about holiness. It's all about identity in the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ, not being associated with the idolatry of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet but instead enduring to the end. That's the parenthetical blessing in the middle of all this. So we must stay awake, and we must not be lulled into a false sense of security that the world attempts to provide. The beast, the dragon, and the false prophet. Because they're going to be destroyed. So may we not make a mistake, because it's easy talk a little bit next week. It's easy to be lulled into the world's philosophy. And we must not mistake the world's fame and apparent success as lost blessing for us. Amen? I know I can easily fall into it. I read somewhere this week, man, where was it? Of a pastor who preaches in Boston and he says he senses the feel of intimidation when he drives down and sees Harvard Law School on the right right, and all its fabulous buildings 
and uh, other buildings of Harvard on the left. And then he travels just a, f- you know, a few more blocks down, and there's MIT. And he goes, and here I am going to preach. What they don't understand, all their glory is so minute compared to what awaits us, and that's a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem descending down out of heaven. Those are the garments of Christ that we're to keep on with that in view, to persevere to the end and not to be lulled by the world. Because although they may attempt to bring down this mount of gathering, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we await a new mount of gathering, beloved. Amen? And that's the whole point, to encourage first century Christians who were being persecuted, surrounded by imperial Rome that said, bow to Caesar or die. We can't forget this original context. It has to do with the church of Jesus Christ, the head of whom is coming. He's already unleashed partial judgment. He will come and finalize it when he comes like a thief. Amen? Amen.